Hello, folks. Welcome to Printabo University number two. What's up, everybody? We're going to give just a minute or two here for folks to log in and send some notifications. But as we wait in the chat, tell us where you're watching from. Where are you at? We'd love to know. My name's Nick. I'm one of the onboarding and sales people at Printavo. I'm I'm actually broadcasting out from California here in sunny Glendale, California. We got Matt and Mike here too. We'll give them a better intro in a second. But uh, where are you guys calling in from? Ooh, what up, Kim? Yeah, Kim from Chicago. We got Durango, Colorado. Love to see that. Ooh, Detroit. Nice. Mr. Richard Greaves, represent. Dave's Mr. in Chicago, too. Mr. Eggers, yeah. Alan, hey, Alan. How's it going? I'm in Kentucky. We got, ooh, another Colorado, Houston. Great. We got some folks here. Let's dive in. Like I mentioned, my name's Nick. I'm on the sales team at Printavo. Matt and I have been doing these Printavo universities. This is our second one. The first one, we talked a little bit about just running a shop day to day, getting sales. This one is all about screens. And Matt brought in a special guest. So, Matt, how about we enjoy our guest? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, when we're trying to figure out what we want to talk about, who we want to talk to, obviously, screens is a big part. Obviously, screen printing, right? Um, so, over the years of doing this, I've made a lot of friends, talked to a lot of people. Uh, there's a lot of great guys that are out there. Some people in the chat right now that are different levels of, uh, of brains that I could only aspire to be. Um, but I was lucky enough to become friends with one of them, Mike Ramirez, uh, who we've got on here. He's uh, I met him when he was uh, just a, a, a lowly screen guy at a shop um, and watched him just take it to the next level and then the next level and the next level. Um, so it seemed like a perfect fit to jump aboard. So uh, without any further ado, Mike Ramirez. Woo! That was a great intro. The best I've ever had. Everyone's sure. applauding right now. For sure. I know. I they're, all they're all doing it. They're all doing it. Thank you so much, guys. That was great. That was yeah, great. Mike, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's going to be really exciting. Let's start out with an easy one. Just tell us about your current job. What's it like day-to-day testing emulsion? Yeah, so we don't just test emulsion, but yeah, I work for QOE here at Houston, Texas. Uh, I work in the applications lab, and uh, the lab kind of, uh, it's like an umbrella. There's a lot of little functions that it, it performs, uh, but one of the main ones is like the research and development that we do. So it's a lot of product development, uh, a ton of product testing. So if there's a need or a hole in the marketplace, uh, we try to fill that. We fill that need, we fill that hole. Um, if it's a new product that we need to develop, our chemists will come up with a formula and sort of direct the product to, to fill those needs. And then what we do is we just test it in the, in the lab. And uh, when it's ready, it goes to market. Yeah, yeah. What's one of those needs you mean? Like, what's the need that somebody's came and, and then you guys developed from, from a customer need like that? That sounds interesting. Yeah, I mean, screen printing isn't just textile. So there's there's industrial, there's, you know, there's all kinds of different types. But uh, if uh, if a printer is in the middle of a jungle in Honduras with, you know, crazy humidity in the printing solvent, you know, nameplates or something, uh, they need a different type of emulsion than the guy down the street printing T-shirts in his garage. So uh, what we do is we just try to 
tailor the products and, and get it out to them and get everything going. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. Uh, yeah, I mean, in, in the lab also, we do a lot of other things. Like, we'll, we'll do a lot of sampling for people as well. So if they want to test the product, sometimes we'll make the screens with our products and we'll send it to them. They could do their own testing in their own facilities. Um, and if they want us to do the testing, we do that as well. We have, you know, the capabilities to do that. And, sure. of course, technical support. So if someone's having an issue with the product or they have questions, they could just call in and, uh, talk to us directly and we can help them remotely over the phone. Nice. Yeah, well, I think all our uh, all our, our viewers today are lucky that they're not printing in the jungles of Honduras. So that, <laughs> that, that simplifies things a little bit. Um, let me ask you a question that's kind of a general question. But for, you know, we got a bunch of different people watching. Tell us about what are different criteria that make emulsion different? And how would someone evaluate which one they should be using? What makes it the right one for one person? Right, right. So everyone's going to have their own needs. Um, you just got to qualify that and figure out what you need, what's working for you in your current emulsion, what isn't, and then we can find something that works for you. Um, there are different types of emulsions. There's three main categories, like four if you want to be really technical. Um, so most textile printers will use um, a single cure SPQ, a single cure photopolymer, I believe, is what Matt likes to call them. Uh, they have, uh, we have diazo emulsions. So it's a straight diazo. It, it requires an added sensitizer um, to basically work. Otherwise, it's not going to do anything. It's just going to fall off the screen. Uh, we have dual cures, uh, dual cure diazo. So it's sort of like a mix of the two, sort of. Um, it's going to have two sensitizing components. So you add the diazo to it and it has an additional component in there that's gonna really harden up. Um, and then the fourth type is a dual cure SVQ. So I hope I didn't just confuse everyone by going out of order. No, you didn't, but I've got a question. So from one of the experts, one of the, one of the guys that does this for a living, what's your favorite? My favorite, my go-to? Yeah. Uh, I always pick the uh, dual cure diazo emulsions just because for me, it's you. I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't yeah, agree more. Um, I mean, all of them work, right? Like, like you said, you got to qualify what what emulsion you need. Um, but when it comes yeah. to holding the quality and getting getting some of the prettiest prints I've ever seen, uh, right. that's 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 my go to uh, type of emulsion as well. So there's exactly. not a wrong yeah. answer, but that was the right answer. Yeah. No. Yeah, that's my personal preference, just because uh, you, you have a lot more latitude with that type of emulsion. Um, you're going to have some of the best resolution and some of the best on-press durability, which means it's not going to break down when you're using different types of ink. Um, when I was running, when I was in production, we would run Plastisol. We were doing textile prints, but we would do Plastisol and water-based and discharge. Um, so that kind of protects from all of those things. You don't have to switch emulsions when you're switching inks or, or whatever. And the resolution was great. We did a lot of half-tone printing, a lot of simulated process. And, uh, Never had a problem holding my resolution. Love it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to share our, our PowerPoint here. Let me. So, when we're looking at emulsions, tell us about does exposure time matter? Like, how should we be thinking about this? Tell us about exposure time and EOM and, and how you evaluate that sort of stuff. 
Yeah. So one thing that Matt knows about me from the time when we, when we worked close together is that uh, I'm a note taker. And I like these photos here because uh, these are directly from my notebook. I do. I, I just collect as much data as I possibly can. So to answer your question, yes, EOM matters. Exposure time definitely matters. And what I would do is document all of these things. And that way I can track and follow these screens wherever they're going, um, whether it's through a shop or I'm shipping them to a customer, then I can refer back to these screens. I can know exactly how I coded them, exactly what the EOM was, exactly how long I exposed them for. And then I can, you know, add, I can supplement this data with, yes, this worked or no, this didn't work. So what you're seeing here is some of my notes. Yeah, that's it. So those years that I got to work closely with Mike, I'd, I'd go into the shop and I, would, I was the sales guy that would help out with the equipment or supplies. And then I would help troubleshoot. And pretty quickly, I hit a point where like I was going in to help troubleshoot with Mike and all of a sudden he's like three steps above, above me and like what he's talking about and doing. I was like, oh my God, what? I was like, it's like the rain man of screens. He's just a different level. Um, so the awesome part was like going in and like seeing his incredible note taking helped me also better myself and want to catch up with what he was doing. So I go in there and like pick his brain and he'd bust out these notebooks just with these amazing scribbles of like everything going on with all the screens that were happening. Uh, so he, he took it seriously from an early, early stage, which I think is why his, his career's progressed so much. And uh, he's literally the, the guy at the lab helping make things go. So yeah, these, these notes are, are key. And I think the, the point there on that slide is that good data equals good screens. And we're going to dive a lot more into that as we go, but it's really imperative to take good notes and actually be able to track this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. How is, how is what this mean? What, what is, you know, I'm sure everybody's heard EO, EOM, but tell us what we're actually looking at and thinking about when we're thinking about EOM. Right. So EOM stands for emotion overmatch. You can see it there in the slide. Uh, and it's basically, it's your stencil buildup, how thick or how thin your stencil is on your mesh. So when we talk about proper EOM, you know, there's there's certain standards that, that are out there that we kind of follow. And, and one would be, uh, you know, if you're running certain types of inks, um, UV inks with high mesh and things like that, uh, you're going to want to have like about 10% EOM. And what that basically means is 10% of your total mesh thickness and so this, what we're talking about here requires a tool to measure this. So you have a thickness gauge and you're able to measure your mesh thickness and then you code it and you measure it again and you want about 10% of that thickness to be on top of that mesh. And that makes a big difference on the print quality, right, Mike? Absolutely. Absolutely. It can make or break a print. I mean, among other things, but that's one of the main variables, definitely. Yeah, so it can, it can be too thin of an EOM or it can be way too thick of an EOM depending on what you're trying to achieve. You can also have exactly. EOM on the, on the wrong side of the mesh, right? You could build, exactly. build up that stencil on the opposite side and all of a sudden now you got little divots that your, your squeegee is going to start getting stuck up in as it starts to go. Right, right, right. Yeah, you want to make sure your stencil buildup is on the correct side of the screen, which is the print side of the screen, the, the side that is going to touch the substrate. That's where you want your stencil buildup. And... Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you coat too thin, you're going to get sawtooth and, and, and stair-stepping and all these things that you don't want to see in, in lines in your print. And if you go too thick, your ink deposit is going to be really pretty horrible. It's going to be pretty wonky. Looking. And so your just, dots are going to gain massively, right? If you're trying to oh, yeah, I mean, take your yeah, 
Exactly. Yeah. If you, once you start getting into halftone, it's going to cause all kinds of problems. So you really want to dial that in. Um, there's a sweet spot for each mesh, you know, because it's dependent on your mesh thickness. So every mesh count is going to be slightly right. different. Well, how about this screen? How's this one? <laughs> I think I think everybody everybody here watching has seen that screen. And if you haven't, bless your soul. You're you're one in a million. Uh, I mean that that to me is that reminds like the first like 20 screens I ever coded in my life. I either spilled emulsion all over like my basement carpet, like just made a giant mess. Or once I was like, oh, I think I finally got it. You come back a half hour later. And the, the dreaded drips are, are just all over. It's like screen chicken pox. You just know that that thing is it's not going to survive. That's that's going to always tell you a couple things. It's it's way too thick of a coating, or you are coating a screen too heavily, and you are in that rainforest he was talking about, and it's just absorbing all that moisture. Then, um, yeah. yeah, Mike, tell me about this picture. Where'd this come from? Yeah, I don't know. This is actually a found picture that I found. <laughs> But it basically is a perfect representation, like you said, of like every screen I coded in college. That just looked horrible. Uh, I wish I could say I was always pretty good at coding screens, but that's not the case. But um, yeah, this is clearly coded way too thick. So you can't even tell if they use a scoop coder or not, um, which you want to use a scoop coder. If you're coding by hand, <laughs> use a scoop coder. Um, it's just, it's uneven. You see the bubbling, the pooling, like you said, it's way too thick. You're not going to get any sort of use out of this screen. You have to reclaim it and start over again. Well, in contrast, here's a screen. Mm -hmm. This looks like what you want, right? Yes. This is, <laughs> this is much different. As you can see, it's not, you know, it's not 3D, right? It's not sticking off of the mesh too high. Um, you got a nice uniform coat. It's been clearly coated with a screen or a scoop coater. Um, I have no problems with that, mainly because I did that. <laughs> now, we talked about how good data is good screens. And here we have a picture of a whiteboard where you're tracking that data. Can you break this whiteboard down for us? Tell us how people could start experimenting in their shop by recording data like this. Yeah, so this photo is actually, um, I took in, in our screen room when I was working in production and textile shop. Um, and what it was, was basically on the left column there, you see uh, the mesh count. So there was a lot of different mesh counts. And like I said, every mesh count is gonna need certain things. They're not all gonna be coded the same way. Not every mesh count is gonna be coded the same way. They're definitely not gonna be exposed the same way. So what I, would, what I would do is for our production team, we would document these things. We would test it, and then we'd write it on this whiteboard for everyone to see. So no matter who is out there coding screens or, in this case, exposing screens, they would do it the same way every time. So it creates redundancy. So basically what this is is all the mesh counts. I think the top, uh, the top row had you know different emulsions or, or something like that, but all those other numbers you see are – uh, the EOMs that were recorded and the exposure times that those need to be exposed at. Got it. So your your EOM on those, you've got a pretty big gamut there, right? You've got I see as low as thirteen percent uh, and as high as forty three percent. So you might even want a different EOM for different screen meshes and different and different needs, right? Right. Absolutely. So. Like I said, EOM is going to be a certain percentage of your mesh thickness. So the finer the mesh, 
the thinner it's going to be, the less emulsion you're going to put on there. Uh, yeah, the, some of the EOM percentages on this are kind of wonky. I'm not sure where those all came from, but you're right. The higher meshes are typically going to have, you want 10, maybe 15%, um, not too much higher than that. If you're running, you know, really coarse artwork, big blocky letters, uh, you know, the neighborhood school, the print publisher, um, you're, you're going to want to use a lower mesh count. It's going to have a higher UM percentage. Normally around 20 is where you want. Partially just because that actual mesh, the coarser mesh is also a larger mesh. So a percentage of a thicker mesh is still a higher percentage, correct? So that's why it's going to still be where you want it to be. Plus you want to stand up and actually get a good lay down, but you have to also cover all those knuckles of the mesh. So it's going to take a little bit thicker of a stencil to do so, right? Right, exactly, exactly. Cool. Now, once you have this calculated, is that that? You know, you got your whiteboard, you write it up there, you're good to go. You could just leave it as is. Um, I wish that was the case, but it's not. Um, see, you, can't it, you can't set it forget it, Mike. It's not like you, you just dialed in once and you're good. No, it's constant, constant dialing in. Uh, depending on where you live, sometimes you got to do a little more. But if you're running the same emulsion, I mean, different environmental sort of changes are going to affect your your coating and your exposure. So in this case, uh, we did this like every quarter of the year because the weather was changing in Chicago so much. Um, so in the winter, our exposures were a little different than they were in summer when it was more humid, uh, things were taking longer to dry and so forth. Um, so this, so once you're able to, to sort of calibrate your screens like this and have this data, you're going to want to continually check that. You don't want to just leave it forever. And, uh, it's just, you want to stay current. You want to stay up to date with it. Yeah. And you mentioned humidity which is why we have a picture of a hygrometer in here. Yeah. Uh, so tell us why should people have these in their shop and how many should they have? Should they just have one in the dark room or, or what's up with these things? Yeah. I mean, this is a great, easy, cheap tool to have just so that you have some sort of record of what your environment in your shop is like. Uh, this one I think was in uh, a screen room. That's definitely important. Uh, you don't want, you don't want it too dry. You don't want it too humid. Um, we could talk about that as well, but uh, you definitely want one of these in the screen room and having one out on press is not a bad idea either. And this way- so with, with, with these, I find that it's, it's, it's really like said on press is great because you're going to be able to actually see like my ink's acting differently. I'm running water based. What's the, what's the humidity level looking like? And you can tell like, Oh, it's a low humidity. I'm in the middle of a Chicago winter, right? I'm having a hard time. You can also start to figure that out. If you look in the morning, like I got a high humidity morning, start looking at the, the forecast. Like it's going to dry up later today. You can actually get ahead of that by scheduling that water base in the morning when you've got that higher humidity. So you actually work with what you're given climate wise to make it best. But like you said, in a screen room, super imperative. This little tool, I want to say is like 10, 15 bucks. You can get on Amazon, wherever. And yeah. it's going to, it's going to be clutch. If you want to actually get, you want to coat a rack of screens, right? Everyone's always complaining about how long screens take. Well, they, they coat 20 screens and they put them in the room and they're like, this emulsion's taking taken three, four, five, six hours to dry. It's like, oh, well, what's the temperature? I don't know, 70? What's the humidity? Uh, I don't know, what's the humidity outside? Well, that doesn't tell me anything, right? <laughs> so making sure that you've got humidity where it's controllable you don't want to go necessarily bone dry because you might have an issue if you if you are a shop lucky enough to have like a computer screen, you might have a hard time with that ink actually sticking to 
the, the, the surface tension after if it's too dry. But I don't know about you, Mike, but I always love to say like, hey, you should try to have a dry box. If you can, you can build one too, right? A dry box, maybe you, you force that to be like 35% humidity and like 90 to 100 degrees. You throw your, a rack of screens in there, if they're coated correctly and they go in there, they should be able to be dry in like 30 minutes, a whole rack, right? And then you take them out. We want to store them usually in about what we're looking at right here, right? Like 45% humidity and around 90. Would, would you agree with that, Mike? Yeah, I mean, when you're storing screens, you want it a little cooler, depending on how long you're going to sit there on the shelf. Um, if you're going to use them right away, it's not as imperative. But like, if it's going to sit there for two weeks, you want to keep it around room temp, if possible. And that's for storing, after storing a dry screen. But yeah, you're right about the dry box. Um, it's the fastest way to get your screens dry. And it also separates them because they're releasing moisture. So you don't want all that moisture being released while it's drying sitting right next to your screens that you're storing to be used later. Now you, I got a question for you too. How long would you recommend you, you have between screen coated and dried to actually using that screen? Um, well, that kind of depends. Um, it depends on how, how safe your room is that you're keeping it. I mean, if you have light leaking in there and you have uh, some light bleed, uh, you're, they're not probably not going to last as long. Um, if you're using different types of emulsions, like we talked about earlier, if you're using a very sensitive single cure SPQ that exposes very fast, it's not going to last very long at all. Um, if you're using a diazo dual cure, you can sit there a little bit longer, but you don't want a screen sitting too long. Um, the exact time is kind of hard to, to say, but I would say um, if it's a diazo dual cure, you know, maybe a week at most, um, I've, you can probably stretch it, but temperature and humidity also play a factor in that as well. It's not just, you know, it's always going to be a two-week time period. You know, if, if it's humid in there, it's going to cause some issues. If it's too dry in there, it can cause some issues as well. And that constant back and forth of it swelling, right? Swelling and drying and swelling and drying. Is that going to also make it more unstable? Um, as long as you're not exposing it when it's moist, and you should be okay. You okay. want to expose it as dry as possible. Good to know. Awesome. I got an easy question that I think is going to have a hard answer. How do you know <laughs> if you made a good screen? That is, that's a great question. I wish more people would ask that. This picture. I love this picture. Uh, this is uh, Dave Dennings in our applications lab. Dave Dennings is a Kilo's product manager. Um, He's responsible for all of my screen printing education. But uh, this is him demonstrating how to check like a screen after you coat it. And what he's doing is he's looking for the gloss. So you can see the, the shine of the light there on that emulsion. That's what you're looking for. So to get back to your question, you know, how do you know a screen is good? It's kind of a subjective thing. Everyone's going to have a slightly different need. So as long as that screen is filling your needs, Who's to say it's bad, right? But what's a good screen to Matt is may not be a good screen for me. So uh, I have my own personal sort of like checklist that I that I made um, to make sure that my screens are processed the same way and processed in a way that I feel is good. Um, but I also have a lot of tools to measure these things. So this, what he's showing on this photo, is a perfect way and a very simple way to make sure that your screens are coated thoroughly. Because when you coat a screen too fast or you're coating it with maybe a too sharp of a trough, 
uh, and you're just coating it maybe one on one side and one on the other, you're not actually encapsulating the mesh. You want that emulsion to fully encapsulate the mesh and you want it to be on both sides of it. And what you do is you coat the screen on the substrate side and you're basically going to coat it as many times as you need for it to get glossy like you see in that photo. So most of the time you can get away with two, um, some finer meshes, uh, maybe maybe three, but not many textiles are going to be pretty with like a 460 mesh. Um, so as soon as you get that glossy side, you know, you've pushed all that emulsion to the uh, squeegee side and you can flip that over and you can coat that squeegee side just one more time with your scoop coater. It's a good starting point. That's a very good point to start your testing. Yeah, that's the, the, the Dennings way, which I've, I've used that line, the Dennings way for years now since uh, seeing Dave Dennings in person do this. And uh, shout out to Dennings who is in the chat here. Um, we've got a handful of brilliant minds in here, uh, Greaves, Dennings, so appreciate you guys being there. Um, so yeah, to, to what Mike's saying, how do you know your screen is good? Um, I think, and I think Mike would agree, is a couple, a couple steps to that, right? Um, that's just one phase of it. You got to make sure the screen's good before you code it too. So you yeah. have to make sure it's good across multiple areas. So I usually kind of break this down to uh, a pre-coded, a post-coded, and a post-exposed to make sure that that the screens are good because they can they can those variables can change a, across the board, right? Um, so I always like to first make sure that the screen is worth my time coding it, right? I don't want to spend time, energy, and money because I'm getting paid to coat the screens and I'm putting on a mold onto the screen, right? So I want to make sure that that it qualifies for my attention first before I actually coat that screen. So making sure it's properly degreased, properly reclaimed, um, making sure it's it's a proper screen that is worthy of my time and my emulsion uh, to to marry to it, right? To actually get coated then, um, and then of course making sure that after it's coated, it still looks good. You're not going to want one that has dust everywhere or issues all over it that then you're like, yeah, we go ahead and just put the film on that and expose that. It's going to work out okay. No, it's not. We all know that, right? Um, and then again, make sure after we expose it's also good. Make sure you don't have any any particles that were on the glass and you're exposing it that caused an issue, right? Or making sure that after you develop it, you didn't over, over blast out your halftones. So really qualifying your screen at multiple steps is going to be really vital to help making sure that that screen is, is good. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, you, you nailed it. Um, yeah, like I said, I have a checklist that I kind of, it, it was more of a mental checklist, but I, I wrote it down. Um, and uh, yeah, it starts in reclaim. It really does. I mean, if you don't reclaim your screen well, you're not going to get a good coat. You're not going to get a good image. You're not going to get a good print. You're not going to have a good end product. Um, so you want to make sure that, yeah, you when you reclaim your screen that you're getting all the debris off of it. You don't want any emulsion particles on your mesh. You don't want to make sure you have any chemical residue. Uh, you need to decrease the mesh. Make sure you decrease it. Nice flood rinse. Make sure we get everything off of there. And once you have a perfectly clean mesh, um, then you want to dry it. You want to make sure that it's completely dry, 100% water-free. Um, and you want to do that in a, like you said, in an area that's uh, contaminant free. You don't want any dust on there. You don't want any whatever, you know, cardboard pieces, whatever's in the shop. You don't want that to touch a wet screen because it's a magnet. It's all going to suck onto it. When you coat it, you're going to be coating over garbage and debris and it's going to ruin your screen, like you said. And you got to start all over. 
Now, yeah, I dig it. We've been talking a lot about mesh. We got this mesh cheat sheet. Uh, tell us about how EOM and this mesh cheat sheet, we were talking about EOM earlier. How do they relate? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this mesh cheat sheet, and I'm pretty sure that we can actually add a link. This is a, a free download that we'll put out there too. Um, this is going to be a good way for, for folks just to kind of figure out like what mesh should I use? Because talking about those variables, EOM is one, there you go. Uh, there's the link right there. EOM is one big variable. So that emulsion over mesh is really going to help define what your laydown looks like. But before that, you still need to make sure you're choosing the right mesh for the job, right? So a lot of times uh, I've been lucky enough through my career to be able to go into hundreds of shops. And uh, a lot of these shops that I go into, I'd walk in and take a look what they're doing and they're printing things just on a whim. Like, well, why'd you choose a 110? Oh, it's what we had. Okay, what's what's your LPI on that? Oh, what do you mean? So it's it's really imperative to understand that all these things have a reason what and why they want to be chosen. So you're gonna want to make sure you understand when to choose what mesh count. Now on this, we've got a little halftone rule of thumb, and this rule of thumb can be broken, and oftentimes is. So by no means is it the law, just a rule, right? Um, so traditionally, you want to look at your art, your art, right? So a good screen uh, from Reclaim before you code it is really important. Also, having good outputs, so good film, or if you're on a CTS, making sure that you've got good outputs and understanding what you're outputting and why. Um, so things like LPI or DPI, lines per inch, dots per inch, um, us on the art side may understand that a little better than some other folks. That's going to let you know that in a one square inch area, how many lines do you have? How many dots do you have? How much data are you trying to force through? So that kind of co coincides with your mesh. Every mesh, the mesh itself, if it's, if it's a 110 mesh, that's saying that in one square inch, there's 110 little little knuckles or openings, right? So you have to know, based off of the output that you have, what the LPI is, how that's going to actually marry correctly to your mesh, and where will you actually be able to hold the data you're trying to get across onto the substrate. So it can be a little cumbersome, and it might throw people off. So this little cheat sheet is kind of a way to help explain what the mesh counts are, where they're ideally used, and then a little bit there on how to help choose what mesh count you should have. So the rule of thumb is the, the one-fifth rule. Um, I find that it's really kind of a one-fourth rule, um, but it was called the one-fifth rule. And you take your LPI and you multiply that by four or five, and that's usually going to give you a pretty good starting point. Now, if you're putting something like this, maybe you'll output it at 35, 45 LPI, but you're not actually holding that small data. So you don't really need to, to worry about too much then. But once you start getting into fine lines and half tones, it's really imperative to understand how those things work together and be able to pick the right mesh for the job. And then, of course, you need to pay attention to that emulsion over mesh ratio, right? So making sure that you're also coding that screen correctly. If you're going to do something that's at a 55, 65 LPI and you're trying to run a 305 mesh and you're going to code it with a 70% EOM, it's going to look muddy, right? If you're going to even do it at 50%, it's going to look muddy. You need to make sure that you're actually taking the right arc to the right mesh and then building up the, the correct deposit of emulsion to translate that to the garment the best. Now, speaking of the correct deposit, tell us about this diagram. Is, is this what we want? Yeah, and this goes kind of along with what, what Matt was saying. And this is sort of to illustrate the, the art to mesh relationship, right? Um, so there's different mesh counts. Um, like you, you mentioned 110. So 
when you're printing with a 110 mesh, you're most likely not going to be printing at 65 LPI. And why? Because you're not going to be able to hold those dots. Those dots are going to be very small. Your mesh is going to be very big. So you don't have enough uh, surface area for that emulsion, those dots, to hold on to. So you're just, they're going to fall off. You're going to lose them. You're just going to be printing ink. You're not going to have any stencil there to block anything. Um, so what this is saying is, you know, two threads, two mesh openings uh, for a halftone dot is what you want. Um, that's a good place to start. And that's, you, it's a little difficult to, to figure out a good way to do it. You're just kind of, if you're using film, maybe just take up the piece of film that you want to print and put it on, put it on an uncoated screen. That's the easiest way to see your smallest dot and if it's printable, because if you have, too many mesh, uh, you don't have enough mesh openings, you're going to be losing. Um, if you're printing with too coarse of a mesh, th that thread could be blocking a dot that you need, a highlight dot. Um, so you want enough mesh openings there for the ink to pass through to get you the resolution of that dot. Otherwise, you're going to be losing it. Does that right. make sense? Right. Here we got a, an actual microscopic image of a screen. It's saying the same thing, but tell us more about the dots on this image and how, how here's what we want. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is just an actual photo of, of that illustration that we just saw. So what you can see is these dots, a lot of them are being cut off by threads. And that's because these dots are too fine for this mesh count. So if you look, um, there's a dot, you know, it's like the fourth one over, the second one down it's almost completely covered by the knuckles of that mesh. That dot will not print. That will not make it to your substrate. So what you're going to get is a pattern. And as that repeats, you can get problems with moiré. Uh, your tonal values are not going to print correctly. You're get, your colors are going to be all over the place if you're printing, you know, sim process or four color process. So what you want is these dots to have enough real estate to hold and print well. Uh, and you can see some of these are just one mesh opening. And Matt, as you know, I mean, some of the presses and some of the ink types that we use, we're not even going to be able to print that dot, even if it's there on screen. Sure. So that goes to the LPI uh, against that that ratio that we were just talking about, right? So in yeah. that, exa that example, the LPI doesn't actually match up to the to the right mesh count that you need to hold the dots you're trying to achieve. So it's it, it it's one thing just to have some high meshes and then be able to actually click print and, and generate halftones. It's another thing to actually be able to marry that to the screen and actually get that onto the substrate. And so if you don't know where to go or how to marry those up, that cheat sheet's going to be pretty helpful. What up, Dylan, in the uh, in the chats there? Glad you could join us and uh, uh, podcaster to podcaster. It's good to have you, brother. Yeah, thank you so much for the folks joining in. The question I'm having is. How do you start getting better at it? How do you, you know, how do you, how do you level up your game? Well, tell us about exposure calculations and how you actually do something like an exposure check. Yeah, I mean, this is so important, and there's so many variables, there's so many things that that go into screen making, um, and we'll talk about. But exposure calculation is definitely a must. Um, now, I'll say before we get into this that if you are coding these by hand and you have five different people in the shop and they're all coded differently, this exposure calculator is not gonna be as effective because Matt's gonna code screens differently than I am and Nick's gonna code them differently than Matt. So you wanna make sure, and 
that picture from earlier, that production picture of the, the whiteboard with all the documented times and have some standard operating procedures in your shop that if you're printing or if you're coding a 110 mesh, it's always coded the same way. That way you have some sort of uh, redundancy in your screens as they're coming through and being processed. So um, does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I've seen that too, running shops that somebody calls off sick, right? And you're like, okay, well, I've got a backup that I've cross-trained on how to coat screens. And they're doing their best job. They're doing a good job coding screens. But as soon as I hit press later that day with the screens that they coded and then imaged that morning, I'm going to press and going, what, what changed? This is a reprint we did last week. And it was a no-brainer. It was easy. Why is this not right? And the, the poor guy coding screens is doing the best that he can, but he's going to have a different speed. He's going to have a different pressure. He's right. going to do, well, I have two over one. Well, are you mechanical? How do you know your two over one matches the last guy's two over one, right? So if you're lucky enough to have an automatic coder, that's a variable that you're actually able to control. And once you can control these variables, you're going to be a lot better to actually be able to test and, and go back in the process and see what's happening and why. But just like right. Mike said, if you're, if you're coding by hand, it's definitely ideal to really get really one person that you kind of d default to at most times. They're going to find they're, they're going to have a natural rhythm of things and they're more likely to hold that as a semi-controlled variable where you can start doing these kind of exposure calculations and actually have some sort of real good data to pull out of it. If you've got eight people coding, these are going to be all over the map. They're not really going to help serve you too, too, too well here, right? right. Um, but Mike, tell us, tell us what we're looking at here a little bit um, and how, how that kind of works in an abridged version if you can. Yeah, so this is just an illustration of uh, an exposure calculator. Um, the green that you see, that would be the coated emulsion that's been exposed. Um, and then the black is the film. That basically just represents the actual hard copy of this film that I have here. So what we do is we have this film here. I don't know if you can see this. It's, uh, this is our exposure calculator. So if you can see that there's a film here in front of it, this is a filter. It's a neutral density filter here. So you can see the repeating images, but this one's dark, this one's a little lighter, and so on, until you get to the last one, which doesn't have any filter. And what that's going to allow is for 10 different exposures, if you look at that illustration again, you're going to get 10 different exposures on one screen, okay, with the repeating image. And the images are exactly the same. So this is how we check... Uh, our resolution, that's why that's repeating that way. And as you can see, the color change. So the lighter color there is the least exposed out of all. So when you're underexposed, you're gonna have a lighter chalky color. As the screen reacts to the UV, as it starts to actually cure, it gets darker and darker and darker until it reaches a point where it basically doesn't change color at all. We call that no color change. So we use uh, the no color change method to dial in our exposure time. So if you look, we have uh, you know 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0.3, all the way to 0.5, you see a subtle tonal change. So you get to 0.6 and on, there's no more change in color. So we know for a good starting point that 0.6, whatever that is, is going to be where we're going to start our exposure. And I went ahead and put it at the top. So if I expose the screen for 60 seconds, um, 0.6 is going to be 
36 seconds. It, it simulates, you know, uh, it, it, simula it simulates like 60% of that. Got it. So you so you do this, then you'd go ahead and look and say, okay, so the no color change, right, is starting at 0.6. So I'd know that it's 60% of the time that I put it through, but we also want to look at the other variables in that, right? So then we want to start looking at when we rinse it out, where are we actually holding the most detail, but we're only really caring about that no color change area, right? So that 0.6 all the way up is what we're looking for. And then we'd see, okay, based off of all that data, where are we holding the best the best points? We might find that it's the 0.6, the 0.7, or even like a, six, a 0.65, right? So it might land between the 0.6 and the 0.7. And then that would be, then be where we start our next exposure, right? Right. So, I mean, that's why I said this is a starting point, because um, depending on what you need and what you're printing, you may want to extend that time a little bit or you might want to, you know, lower that time. A bit. You might want to be in the 0.4 range um, if you're printing plastisol inks and you're only doing 10 shirts, but you have really fine half tone that you've been having trouble, uh, you know, gaining or resolving in development, then maybe underexpose it a little bit. Um, but if you're running long runs with discharge and you're just printing Printavo text over your shirt, then go ahead and, and move it up. Then you're going to have a more durable stencil. It's going to be more resistant to your inks. And you don't have to worry about closing in any sort of fine halftone. Um, and you've done you've done 10 exposures on one screen, right? right. So, so you're, getting, you're getting more data out of having to like, you're not wasting screens. You can really get all of this out on one, maybe two screens to actually hammer in what that exposure calculation is, but that's going to be per mesh, right? It's not going to be across the board. That's per actual mesh count, right? Exactly. Every mesh is going to expose differently because so it's going to have a different amount of emulsion on it. It's going to have a different EOM. And then not to mention, you know, mesh colors, you know, you got your white mesh, your yellow mesh, um, you know, some of those like clear transparent meshes that I've seen. Um, yeah, this is just a starting point. This doesn't mean that, okay, expose this at seconds because you might, not need it there. You know, you, you can you can use that 36 seconds and dial this in even more. You can dive in even further with another screen uh, using a, a shorter time. Okay. Love it. So when we're looking at these two images, which one did we which one is exposed correctly and which one isn't? Okay, yeah, I love these. Um yeah, this, this has to do with EOM. So the, the image there on the left uh, looks a lot different than the image on the right. Uh, the image on the left is a very thin coating. That's what it looks like when you coat your screens too thin, when your EOM is too low. And you can see that there's no stencil wall. There's no stencil at all. Almost. It's just barely covering the mesh. So your resolution is going to suffer horribly because you're going to print that line. It's just, it's not going to look like that. You're going to get really bad sawtooth, uh, your stencil is most likely going to break down because there's not enough emulsion there if you're printing, you know, a harsher water-based ink or discharge or something. You're also um, not going to encapsulate the fibers of the shirt. If you're printing on a fiber shirt and that's the stencil you're working with, you're going to have to do a thin deposit ink. If you're on a manual press, you're going to print, flash, print, flash, print that yeah. white before it starts to look anywhere near good. So the amount of the manpower and the, the, the time that goes into it you're, you're going to be killing yourself, even on an auto, for that to look good. It's still going to be a print, flash, print, flash, print. And then you're still going to have sawtooth thing and edge definition that's going to be garbage. 
where yeah. the, other, the other one, like I'm sure Mike's going to go over, you can see an actual wall that it's built, right? It's actually got an area to define a line and an edge and also an area to hold ink when you flood flood that screen to then drop that nice deposit to shear off. Exactly. And that's, the, you hit it. That's exactly it. You can see the clearly defined line. It's bridging over the mesh perfectly. You have a nice straight stencil wall and it's completely encapsulated the mesh, which means your ink deposit is going to be right where it needs to be. Mm. I see. Okay. I'm starting to get this. Um, I'm wondering, is anybody listening have questions for Matt and Mike? Start chatting up, put your questions in the chat. But I'm starting to see how you can make some really effective changes in your shop if you're keeping track of the data and you're using that test that Mike just told us about. Um, let me turn off the PowerPoint here. We don't got any more slides. I have a more personnel question. Not necessarily, it's about screens, no doubt. But it sounds like our reclaim person is a really important role to getting your screen game up. So tell us what makes a good reclaim person and how do you know who to hire for this? And then, of course, folks watching, just like Cole did, drop your questions in. And after this one, we're going to we're going to get to them. But how do you pick your reclaim guy? How do you know who's a good fit for that role? Yeah, I mean, you want someone who uh, who can actually, you know, handle the job because we know it's it's the dirtiest, it's the smelliest job. Uh, it's not a glamorous one, that's for sure. But they need to be someone who can who can think analytically at times because they're going to have to work very closely with the screen room to let them know if something's not going right with the screens. Um, that's going to follow into the screen room. They're going to have to make adjustments. Um, you want someone who's kind of uh, not not scientific, but someone who who I don't know, man. How how would you explain this? I mean, I think I think kind of scientific, honestly. I mean, I I don't want to like throw throw you under the bus, Mike, but uh, it's you're a little bit of a nerd uh, in everything you do, right? In your guitar playing and everything, like you care about the variables, you care about trying to really focus in on what makes what you're doing happen and why does it matter it's why you're great at guitar it's why you're great at screens because you actually care so in my time running shops or working with shops i always found that the people that were willing to care about what they were doing and why they were doing it were the ones that made the best screen text now that might go from starting them off and having them reclaim if you just give them a big room full of dirty screens and you never let them finish the screens like if that room is constantly just being bombarded and you're not talking about what they're doing or why they're doing it, they're going to come in, they're going to show up, they're going to do the job as they understand it, and they're going to leave feeling like they never got anywhere because that big stack of screens behind them never got any smaller. They did 100 and you put 100 back in that room, right? So first of all, make sure you have goals set for that person. Hey, if you can knock out 200 screens a day, that's amazing and I'm going to be so happy. Maybe you, if you're doing a manual shop and you can do 50 screens a day and the other tasks, that's great. Set, set standards of what you're expecting out of them and then help them achieve that. And then ask questions. I always saw Mike going in and talking to the guy that was reclaiming and he asked him questions like his answer mattered because it did. He'd go in there and ask him like, hey, are these reclaiming harder? Hey, th those jobs that had the SIM process for the band we were working with, 
did those screens come out any different? Did you notice something? Did you have to spend more time on them? And just those little questions, the guy was like, you know, I did notice something. Why was it different? And then Mike could start imparting his knowledge while he's gaining data points back from his reclaimer. So that, that sharing of knowledge helped that person actually care about what he was doing and realize what was happening. And then if he had a screen go through that wasn't right, and Mike came over and was like, hey, I coded the screen. It looks like hot trash. I think here's why. And let's talk about why. Let's explain why what you did affected me. But we can also talk about why what I did affected you based on what you're having to do with Reclaim. It's all a circle, right? So really controlling those, those situations and helping them learn about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Now, you're not going to be able to pay the screen guy as much as maybe you're paying the guy that is running the auto at a 700 per hour rate, right? But value that person in more ways than, than just financial, right? You can value their input. You can let them know like, hey, you're showing a lot of promise in this area. I know that Reclaim is not necessarily the best, but it's going to be helpful for you. And you're able to learn with that. Did we, did we lose Mike? We might have lost no. Mike. That's really going to be huge to, to actually foster those people, make make them feel important and like they're going to grow with the shop. Because then you get somebody like Mike, right, who started off in a screen room, did some reclaiming himself and then kept growing. Right. Ended up being one of the best screen techs I've ever had the pleasure of getting to know. And then now he gets to work at the actual emulsion manufacturer doing this testing whole other level. Right. So it's really important to really care about that, those, those people. And maybe you have somebody in your shop that you can't find the right fit, but you notice that they are really, can you guys hear me? Yeah, we got you. feel lost. Black. Oh, sorry, that's right. crapping out, guys, sorry. Um, but yeah, take care of those people um, and, and uh, foster those relationships and teach people. Let them get excited about what they're doing. Don't let, make them do the same thing day in and day out without knowing why they're there. Yeah, I mean, you've made some great points. I mean, education was always something I was uh, I was really fond of, I guess. You know, I, I wanted them to know, and this, is, this isn't just the Reclaim department. This is anyone else helping in screen room printers if they want. Um, you know, why are you doing these things? Why, does, why do we have SOPs in place? Uh, why are these things important? And ultimately like letting everyone understand that when, when these things go uh, smoothly and things are done in a certain way, it makes, it makes the shop run better. It makes everything easier for everyone. Um, and that goes with the kind of the question, Nick, that you asked earlier, which was uh, how do I level up out of, out of making better screens you know, help me? Like what is the benefit even? Well, I mean, if you're making good screens from the beginning, those screens are going to move smooth and they're going to move faster through your shop and you don't have to worry about reshooting screens because you're not holding resolution. You know that you've done the, the coding test. You know you've done the exposure test. You know you're going to hold the resolution that you need. You know it's going to be durable on press and you don't have to keep stopping the press to tape up pinholes or to tape up cracks or to change out screens completely if it breaks down. Um, and you know it's going to reclaim the way it should. It's going to be easy to reclaim. Um, so like Matt said, I mean, communication is key. Someone that can communicate well, that can understand uh, why they're doing something, even if it's, you know, mundane or, or repetitive for a while. Um, and yeah, I mean, a lot of times I would have those guys 
move into the screen room because I would be constantly talking to them about screens. Once they got to back in, I would want them in the front. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to think about it. I, I talk to a lot of shops, and I don't know if everybody's thinking about it that way. A lot of folks think that the reclaimed person is somebody who could just be a part-timer, doesn't really matter, but that's a different way to think about it, and that makes a lot of sense. We have a really cool question from Cole. Let's read that one out. Cole asked, what kind of EOM would you want for discharge, low or high? Great question. I'll let you take that one, Mike. Um, well, discharge prints are probably going to be using a lower mesh count. Um, so your EOM is going to be uh, pretty much based on, on, on the mesh count that you're using. So I would say, um, for me, probably around 15 to 20% if you're using a 110 or a 150. I mean, if you're printing discharge, you're most likely not going up to a 225. Would you agree? Uh, yes, it depends on what kind of discharge. If clear discharge, underbase, I may actually go that high. Um, okay. If I'm doing doing anything with acrylic, um, oftentimes what I, I like is about a 10% EOM. Um, it really is going to depend on what I'm trying to do. If I'm trying to do this in like a discharge white, yeah, I'm going to build it up a little more. But I'm trying to get into a nice, soft, high-quality sim process job. I do find that a slightly lower EOM, so around like the 10 to 12%, actually helps me from drying up as much. I've got less surface area on that wall that I've built that I'm able to not have cling up of 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 ink drying up along those edges, which oftentimes causes it to choke, right? Um, so with we talk about dot gain with screens, we often get dot lost when we're dealing with a lot of water-based discharge because it starts to kind of cling up around those edges. So uh, there's a lot of back and forth. You might find different answers that work for you, um, but I've seen a lot of really good results by having your discharge or your water base in general uh, really try to be closer to that 10 to 12 range. Uh, 15 is great too, but it will help really uh, make sure you've got a good deposit, you're holding good detail, but you're not allowing a, a thick stencil where that water base can actually dry up and cause more problems. I see. That's a good point. I've got another personnel question. But remember, folks in the chat, ask questions. What do you need to know? What do you need to know to level up your game? Just chat it to us right now. But here's a question. I'm a salesperson. How do we tell our salespeople in the shop enough information so they're not underquoting jobs, but not bog them down with too much information so that it's killing deals? How do you get that sweet spot for your salespeople? Yeah, uh, I mean, I'll let Mike take this in a second too. I'm sure he's got some some good opinions, but um, educate, right? It's it's one thing. A salesperson is really going to be a good relationship builder. Um, that that's what they're for, right? They're to go kind of talk about what you can offer them, help people out, and build relationships. They might not necessarily be the most technical uh, or or be like screen savvy with this. But it doesn't mean they're not capable of learning those things. I would never expect a salesperson for a print shop to ever have Mike's brain. It wouldn't make sense, right? Mike's Mike's in the position he's at for that. You want a salesperson who's good at sales and talking. I'm sure Mike is, but you want someone that specializes in that. So educate them, empower them, give them tools. Uh, bring them in for a lunch and learn, right? Bring them into the office and take them around the presses. Show them what you're doing and why you're doing it. And let them start understanding the variables. But more importantly, give them the tools to do this. So maybe give them some, some samples. Give them a sample book. Give them shirts that show what we can do and how we can do it. I remember the shop that Mike was, was at for a long time, phenomenal shop here in Chicago. Uh, they had this crazy shirt. 
Mike, you probably know more about this. <laughs> I, I, I'm assuming this shirt, had they actually sold it, would have been like an $85 shirt at like <laughs> insane. This shirt was covered in different different prints. But that one shirt had all the prints they could do, the sizing they could do. It had puff, it had process, it had sim process, it had metallic, it had, it had everything all over the place. It was crazy. It didn't look good to wear. You wouldn't want to wear it, right? But they could give that one shirt to a top-notch client and they could say, here's what we can do. It's all in that shirt. Figure out where you want it and, and let's go. You could, you could do things like that. Test. When you're testing out new ink samples, go ahead and print some extras. Put it on a rack. Give it to your salesperson. When you're ordering shirts, blanks, it's a cool job, order extras for a couple of reasons. One, if you misprint, you can use the extras to fulfill the order and you're getting a better user experience for your customer, right? Fulfill the full order. And if you don't misprint, now you got, okay, well, I got five extras. I guess I shouldn't print them. No, you should. If that is a cool print, print those extras. Put one on your rack, put one in like a, a, a sample box, and then give others to future customers that are asking questions. They're like, hey, what's a print like that? Look, here you go. Or you can mail it to them. We're in COVID right now, so maybe you have to mail it to them. Or you can just make sure that you've got a good salesperson that has a trunk full of sample, and they can be like, can we do this? What's it look like? They can start to see and it's tactile. They can feel it. They can see it. They can stretch it. Right? You got a smelly ink. You can smell it. Whatever you want to do. Um, so have those samples and have them ready. What do you think, Cole? I'm sorry, Cole. What do you think, Mike? I'm reading Cole's comment. What do you think, Mike? <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. Visuals. Visuals. I, I'm all about that. Samples. Um, yeah, that shirt that you're referring to, that was a fun one to make. It was like, like 50 screens that we had to make for it. For one. We only had time to make one. But, uh, yeah, it, you know, if you have a visual samples for your sales staff so they know the types of inks that, that you offer, um, the positions, that was an important thing in that that shirt was it showed what a center chest where it's going to be how big it is um you know the capabilities you don't want to say oh yeah we could print all over the shirt when you only have you know 20 inch screens because um, it's just impossible you want them to be informed of, of the capabilities of what you can do as well and not only like the, the special effects aspects of it but what you can and cannot do yeah, absolutely. I see a question that uh, that uh, Roberto is asking, uh, asking about different benefits for mesh diameter. So we oftentimes will talk about 230, 160. That's only one of the numbers that defines a screen. There's a couple numbers that define a screen, right? Oftentimes yeah. you'll have a second number, like in this, in this question, a 230.40 versus a 230.48. Now that second number is going to reference the actual diameter of that mesh. Right, so if you've got a mesh and it's all, all clunged up, what is the diameter of that actual thread, right? So a 248 or a 230-48 might be like a thicker diameter versus the 40 is a thinner diameter, right? So having a thinner diameter will actually allow for a larger opening, right? So take my thumb times four, the open space is a little smaller than my pinky times four, much bigger area. Now, what that's gonna do is gonna allow for a better flow. I'm personally a, huge fan and proponent to have uh, like 130 mesh. Uh, that's, a, that's a thin thread mesh. I'll use that over a 110 personally any day. I find the flow is better. My deposit's better. I'm actually getting a, a better horizontal stack as opposed to having to stack it vertically. So I'm able to help 
cover the, the, the fibers of the shirt and lay down a, a smoother print without having to do maybe a print flash print of that white just to get those same things matted down. Um, so it's really important to, to play with that as another variable. Now, it's not going to say like, hey, if these are better, why don't we use them? Well, because they're not necessarily better. It's how are you using it? And the downside of a thinner thread is they're going to pop easier, right? Because you've got a thinner thread. It's going to be a lot more unstable and not able to handle getting beat up as frequently as most screens usually are. Um, but it's a great, great question. Uh, I definitely recommend that if you've got a, a, a supplier nearby that has any kind of thin thread mesh, get a few. They're going to be a little more expensive, but test them out. You might see a pretty good difference. You might decide you want to switch meshes, certain meshes to a thinner thread or figure out what kind of printing do I prefer that to be. I really love, like I said, the 130 over a 110 almost every time. And I really enjoy using it for water base. That open area, once again, really helps that water flow and it prevents a little bit more of that cling and dry that we talked about. Um, I don't know if you agree with me on that, Mike. I mean, you don't have to, it'd be wrong, but you don't have to, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I always agree with you, man. Um, no, <laughs> I, I really do, I, I, I on most of it. I mean, for discharge, when, when, when I was in the screen room, uh, we did use thin thread mesh, and we used it because we printed a lot of discharge, a lot of discharge underbases, like very few um, plastisol underbases. So, the thin thread allowed for that larger open area and allowed for better, a better deposit of all that discharge to get that right, that vibrancy. Um, just remember that, you know, if you're using a thinner thread, if you have a 230, 48, 230-40, that 48 is going to have a little more real estate to that. Thread's going to be a little thicker. You're going to have a little more surface area for emulsion to cling onto. So if you have a thinner thread, you run the risk of, possible breakdowns and you may not hold some of those shadow dots, those small dots that need a thread to, to hold on to, it might not be there. Um, yeah, that's so a good that, point too. You can see that you can't really make one overall answer, right? If it was that easy, we'd only have six or seven different, different mesh types, period, and all the manufacturers would match these. There's so many unique different variables and reasons why you want it to be unique and you want it to be your way. So don't ever listen to anybody, me included, telling you that one way is the best way. There's so many ways to do this. And like Mike started off with, if it's working for you, it's the right way. But it's definitely important to understand these variables. I was, I was talking, I was at uh, I was at MNR earlier today for some other things. I was talking with uh, a, shop, a guy that runs a phenomenal shop up in uh, the Rockford area. And I was kind of just shooting it with him and we were talking, I was like, honestly, what do you think the percentage of people that run shops or own shops or, or, or should be in the know, what do you think, how many do you think they actually know all these variables? And his answer was that he thought no more than 55% of, of shop owners actually really understand these variables. And that's, that's a big thing to think about, right? If you're doing screen printing, Richard Greaves is great, screen printing, right? The word screen is the first part of that. So I can't emphasize enough how important it really is to understand. Now, if you're the owner, you might not need to understand this, right? Your job is to understand who to hire to understand these things, right? But you need to have somebody in your shop that's holding these things and taking accountability for them, gathering these data points and understanding, okay, what is a thread diameter difference? Does that matter? Another great question to, to, to know the answer to is one that Cole has brought up is, is certain lights, is it important? If you have LED, metal halide, 
Do those things matter? Understanding these different variables is really important to help understand how to move forward in your screen making game. Um, so with that question uh, that Cole asked Mike, uh, is do do lights matter? Are, what are the different kinds of lights that come with exposure units usually? And what are the differences that you see with those? Yeah, I mean, they, they absolutely matter. And, you know, we touched on it briefly. There's so many variables. There are so many things that go into to creating, you know, the perfect screen. Um, and the light source that you're using is definitely one of them. Uh, you know, my go-to is the metal halide, a single point light. So you have your mesh, your screen, you have one light hitting it. Um, you know, some of the LEDs and other light units of fluorescence and things will have multiple light sources. And when I say light sources, I mean multiple bulbs. So you have numerous rows of LEDs or numerous fluorescent tubes. Um, that light is going to scatter. It's just going to be coming at the screen at all these different angles. And um, you run the risk of undercutting. You lose resolution because of that. Um, not only are the lights going to affect that, the types of lights, um, the distance is going to affect. So that requires energy. So the farther your light is, the longer your exposure time is going to be. The closer it is, the shorter. Um, but then that also creates issues, whether or not you're using a single point or multi-point. Uh, it's a rabbit hole that we can we can go down forever. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what else to add. What do you? I kind of check the uh, no, absolutely. <laughs> now I think it, it's important to, to note this that once again, if your screens are working for you no one's saying you're doing it wrong. It's just important to understand these variables, right? So each type of bulb is gonna be different, right? So traditional bulbs have gases in them. Those gases are then ignited with the power source and they glow. Now that glow is gonna have different wavelengths of light and that wavelength of light is going to impact the emulsion and it's actually going to go through the different, different layers of emulsion differently until it hardens or cures uh, or cross links, right, is the word, to solidify that into a, a good solid. Now, you can, I spent a good four or five years of my early screen printing days in my teens using the sun as an exposure unit. And now it couldn't hold the fine detail that Mike can hold on a metal halide, right? But it worked. So it depends on what you're trying to do. If you are trying to get into printing on 305s or high mesh and do SIM process, and you've got a home built unit with like 10 different, just random bulbs balanced on it, you might you might have a very hard time. It doesn't mean you can't do it, but you're not gonna have the same effect as somebody with a single source metal halide that's banding out and providing one source of light that's concentrated and the correct full gamut of wavelength. So that will, will impact your print. Uh, LEDs are very, very popular, especially in the last couple of years. Uh, they're great. They're going to be able to take an exposure unit down to being incredibly fast, right? I've, I've seen a lot of 18 second exposure times. Now, for me, I never really cared too much about that because my process wasn't stacking up 20 screens and then knocking those out. Now, I've got friends at shops that that's what they do. They'll do like 20 screens and then they'll stand there and every 13 seconds take a screen out and that works for them. Now, if they're also not trying to get into award-winning SIM process either. They can do some SIM process, but they're not trying to go win awards with the best resolution, looking under a loop and analyzing that. But absolutely, the type of exposure you have, the type of light source you have, not only that, how what your what is your bulb like? Now, LEDs, the bulbs are much gonna be good forever. But if you're dealing with a metal halide, 
a fresh bulb versus a bulb six months later, eight months later, very different, right? So it's really important to understand that that is also a huge variable that you need to understand, respect as a variable, and then be able to control it and test it as you go along too. So yeah, great, great question about, about the, uh, the types of light. Um, they're all gonna do their job. Like I said, the light, this, the sun itself will do it too. Um, and that, that actually brings up a good point too that I wanna also talk about is uh, post exposure, right? That's, that's a, a big one that, that we hear a lot of. Uh, I've always been a big fan of shops if it's in the summer uh, or like my little manual shop that I've got. After I expose my screens and rinse them, I'll just go put them out in the sunlight and let them dry out there. And I, I, I face it to the sun, squeegee side up. That way I'm hitting the light the other side and it's helping dry it. But Mike, what would you say to shops that um, are, are curious about post exposure? Is it is it beneficial? Should they do it? And what effect does it actually have on the on the screen? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not gonna hurt anything, that's for sure. Um, if you're having issues with breakdown, especially if you're running water-based or discharge, um, and you're using uh, like a single cure SPQ or, or a double or a dual cure SPQ, um, you can always post expose. So basically you're gonna expose your, your image, uh, you're gonna develop it. Once it's dry, you just set it back, like Matt said, right back on the exposure unit with the squeegee side facing the light source. Um, and that's just gonna basically kind of continue the, the reaction as much as you can. But just remember if you underexpose too much and you try to post expose, it's probably not gonna help because if you underexpose, that emulsion that hasn't reacted to the UV is just gonna wash away during development anyway. So you're basically already, you're just post exposing already exposed emulsion, already cured emulsion. So it does help and it, it, you could prolong the life on press for sure. Um, but again, that's just for, uh, you know, it mainly it's, it works with water-based and discharge. Would you recommend like a rule of thumb, just if you can post expose all the time? Yeah, it's not gonna hurt. It's not gonna hurt anything. It, it, it's only gonna help. So I, I would say, I would agree with you on that. Awesome. Great. Well, we're going a little bit over time. I have a real practical last question here. How do we put this to action? We talked about so much great information. I'm sure some of the people watching it are gonna watch it again. But how do we put this into action? What do we do? What are some practical first steps to start implementing this information in your shop? Yeah, I mean, I would say that you want to buy some of those things we've talked about, right? I mean, the hygrometer, the exposure calculator. Two hygrometers, one for the dark or one for the screen room, one for the shop floor. The exposure calculator. That sounds like that's how you can actually take some trackable data. And how do you have to buy one every year, something like that, or, or what's what's the deal with those? What the calculator? Mm -hmm. It's kind of a one and done deal. I mean, as long as you keep it healthy, you don't drop it in the the dip tank, you're okay. Yeah, you can get yeah. one, and it should last for for as long as as you keep it. It's not like it's not like a process. Some folks up there might be like, oh, well, when I get my film wet, mm. it's ruined. It's not at all like like the film coming out of your inkjet. This is actually a processed image set film. Uh, so it, it can get wet and you just just dry it off. It's fine. Um, so I mean, I, I bought I've got the same exact one, the Kiwo one that I've had for man, a decade now. Um, I mean, the, the folder is a little beat up, uh, but I've been keeping those those, those films healthy. I mean, and they've gotten stuck. I've, I've had screens that were it was it got stuck to it. Like 
sit there and peel it off and then like take my fingernail and scrape the ink off or something off the, the emulsion off. Um, but yeah, it should last you your career. I mean, they're, they're not the cheapest things. I think they're, I don't want to price it completely, but I want to say somewhere on the $75 range roughly um, depends where you're buying them from. Um, but it, it's, it's going to last your career. So as a shop, you should have one for the shop. And like I said, $75 range to have for the shop indefinitely to test these things. Like Mike said, at least four times a year, you should test every single screen. Um, Cause you also have to check, okay, from January to March, maybe you're in a place in, in, in the country or in the world that doesn't really have that big of a swing when it comes to temperature or humidity, but your bulb's been used, right? So if that bulb's been used for eight months, maybe it's degraded a little bit. You need to actually adjust and put it on longer to make up for that bulb slowly dying off. Um, or you've got a brand new bulb and you did the, the, the exposure calculation last time on a year old bulb, that brand new bulb's gonna be coming in hot, right? So you wanna make sure that you're accounting for that too. Um, so yeah, I mean, the hygrometer, like I said, you can get that off of like Amazon for, uh, for like 10 bucks. Um, you can look that up, hygrometer, oftentimes called a hydrometer, but it's actually called a hygrometer with a G in there. Um, but yeah, get one of those 10 bucks, get two of them, put one by your press, one in your dark room, um, get an exposure calculator or just get a vector and repeat that vector 10 times. And then you can just get a, like a, a piece of cardboard or something that's going to block like tin foil, right? Blocks like really well. And you can set it on there, expose it, move it over, expose it, move it over. And you can make your own without having to buy one, right? It's just expose, have the same image. And as it keeps going, you're going to keep exposing the first one over and over and over again. And you're going to end up having 10 different exposures all on one screen. And that's going to give you a better idea of what you're looking for. Uh, I, I always am a fan of just, just buy the calculator. It's made for this. But if you don't have that available or you're not quite sure if you want that, still find your own way by doing it like that to test out what those different times look like. And then one more, and this one's free. Or maybe you pay five bucks for a whiteboard. Keep your data. Start tracking your data. You don't got to buy anything for that. Put a piece of paper on the wall, and you can go back in the video and look exactly. Just do it like Mike does. If you're keeping your data, that's going to up your game fast. You know, from zero data to some data, you're going to really notice changes that's really going to help. So those three things, the hygrometer, the calculator, and keeping your data, that's where we recommend you start, and we'd love to hear about how it goes. You know, we're going to do another one of these in two weeks, and come on back. Tell us how it's going. Keep asking questions. Before the last thing, I, the last thing I want to say too, keep an open mind. The worst thing that you can do is think that you know the answer. This is an ever-evolving industry, and your screens are going to ever evolve. So many variables are changing. Don't ever say, "Well, that can't be because." Find out why it can't be, and find out if maybe it could be. Right? Be open to test. Be open to getting new insight and new data points. Don't decide that you are the end all on your data points. They're going to change. Be open to evolving with them and track the data, but never decide it's a permanent because it's going to always be moving. So don't, don't think you know everything. Uh, keep learning. Keep asking questions. Keep making mistakes. Keep breaking screens. Keep breaking down on press. Keep doing all these things till you find the perfect screen for you. That's perfect. That seems like a great note to end it on. But Mike, any other thoughts? Anything else you're you'd like to share with the crowd? No, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I agree. I agree with you guys. I agree with Matt. Um, you don't know you're doing something right until you have done it wrong, right? I mean, uh, 
made a lot of mistakes at screen making and you just track what doesn't work and you can find find the path for you. So there we go. Well, thanks so much, gentlemen, and thank you, everybody watching. We will be back in two weeks, and we will put up what we're talking about soon. Uh, if you want to watch this again, it's going to be on YouTube, but you can also watch it on this link right when it's over. So thank you again so much for Mike for joining us, and Matt, as always. Everybody else, have a great rest of your day. Thank you, fellas.